Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. You Are Not So Smart is part of the Boing Boing family of podcasts. Find all of those podcasts at boingboingpodcasts.com. Today's episode is brought to you by MIT Press, a leading book publisher. This season, the MIT Press is publishing Susanna Herculano Huzel's book, The Human Advantage, a new understanding of how our brains became remarkable. It's a fascinating story about what makes human brains awesome, how we left our cousins, the great apes, behind, and what neurons, calories, and cooking have to do with it all. Read more about The Human Advantage and other new science, language, philosophy, technology, and art books at mitpress.com slash smart. That's mitpress.com slash smart. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 75. This is the seventh episode in a series of episodes, a season of episodes all about Logical fallacies. Logical fallacies. If you haven't heard the other episodes, we covered what logical fallacies are and how they work. And then we talked about the fallacy fallacy, the no true Scotsman fallacy, the Texas sharpshooter fallacy, the black and white fallacy, the straw man fallacy, and begging the question. By the way, you can get these episodes ad free by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. As in all of our Logical Fallacy episodes, we are going to enlist the help of three experts in logic and reasoning and thinking in general. And those experts are... I'm Vanessa Hill. I'm the writer and host of Braincraft, which is a PBS Digital Studios series on psychology, neuroscience, and why you act the way you do. So I'm Julia Galef. I A few years ago, I co-founded this nonprofit called the Center for Applied Rationality. I have my own podcast called Rationally Speaking. Um, in which I focused on applying concepts from psychology and philosophy and statistics to everyday life. I'm Bob Blaskowitz. I'm a assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University. Uh, I well, I, I teach students how to basically uh, read and think. And together, Julia Gala, Vanessa Hill, Bob Blaskowitz—they're going to help us understand the special pleading fallacy. You've committed this fallacy before, and you've been on the other end of an argument with someone who has been using it to wiggle out of something. You have spotted it in the wild, in the mouths of politicians, and in the actions of others. Special pleading is all about exemptions, excuses for why a standard or a rule or a description or a definition does not apply to something that you hold dear or something that you or someone connected to you has done or believes in. 
Oftentimes, those excuses are for why those standards don't apply to the very person making an argument for those standards. So think of a judge who gets pulled over for speeding but explains that she was late for a kid's birthday party or was on the way to give birth at the hospital or just deserves some kind of special treatment because she's a high-ranking official in the legal system. Now, some of these seem like reasonable excuses and some not so much. That's why in the world of logic and reason, special pleading is considered a conditional fallacy because sometimes there are justifiable exceptions to a standard or rule. Provable explanations why sufficient evidence can't be presented or just so happens to be absent. But sometimes those justifications are so weak that they're fallacies. So what turns an exception into a case of special pleading? And how can you spot this when it's a full-blown logical fallacy? And what are some examples and how do you prevent yourself from committing it and how do you defend against it? Well, that's what we're going to talk about today on the You Are Not So Smart podcast. My name is David McCraney, and after this short commercial break, I'll be back with three experts who will explain everything. As you probably know by now, I am a big fan of The Great Courses, and that's why I'm excited to tell you all about their new video learning service, The Great Courses Plus. You can learn about anything and everything with unlimited access to The Great Courses lectures on hundreds of topics taught by top professors with The Great Courses Plus. You can browse the entire catalog, create playlists, and watch as many different lectures as you want anytime anywhere. And right now they are giving my listeners a special chance to watch their popular course, How to Play Chess and hundreds of other courses absolutely free. Yes, How to Play Chess is a series of video lessons taught by an international master, the renowned chess teacher, Jeremy Silman. And chess, as you know, is considered more than just a game. It's a science, an art. It's based on skill, tactics, and intellect. And this course, in particular, it provides a deeper understanding of the game and provides tools to become a better thinker, helping you to be more confident when thinking strategically. And now, The Great Courses Plus is offering my listeners a chance to stream hundreds of their courses, including this one, How to Play Chess, a $235 value for free. When you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash smart. That's The Great Courses Plus dot com slash smart. And now we return to our program. This is the You Are Not So Smart podcast. I'm David McCraney, and this episode is all about special pleading. This is where someone wants or even expects an exception to a rule to be applied and often to them personally and without giving any justification. Uh, special pleading is making an exception to a widely accepted rule of thumb without really justifying that exception. So when people take themselves to be exempt from a situation where they're not. Often it is to, uh, well, it's simply to preserve the belief at the expense of evidence often, right? Um, and so it's it's a type of motivated uh, 
uh, defense. I've thought about this fallacy a lot in recent election cycles and specifically around the issue of immigration. Mm-hmm. But uh, so let's say leaders from Australia, for example, say stop the boats. That's their election catchphrase to kind of stop boats of like refugees from coming to the country. Uh, and, and they advocate on big restrictions on immigration and call people un-Australian. Uh, in the US, you could say uh, Trump says build a wall and don't let Muslim people into the country. It's a similar sentiment. But hang on. Like, unless you're Aboriginal or Native American or have some kind of Indigenous heritage, I'm pretty sure all of your ancestors were immigrants, and especially in times of hardship or war. <laughs> yeah, it's all about timing. Yeah, see. yeah. And and I think in the case of Australia, it's such a young country that a lot of people only arrived from Europe and Asia in the past 100 years. But oh. if you're displaced from the Middle East in the past five years, oh, I'm sorry, we don't do political asylum like we did in 1960. And, um, and I mean, the Australian government even ran ads in Afghanistan deterring refugees. Like they bought billboards and they said, you will not make Australia home. Like that is an advertising oh campaign that they ran in the Middle East. I know. So I think simply, more simply, it's like we are immigrants who came to a safe country in a time of crisis. Years pass. We don't really welcome immigrants anymore. There also might be when someone's trying to give you like a justification, a, an argument for something like uh, oftentimes the one that, that I see a lot when people talk about special pleading is the, you know, look at the universe is so complicated or the eyeball is so complicated or whatever mm-hmm. that it requires a creator um, because it's too complex and amazing to just, you know, happen. And then you'll say, well, if you're sort of saying now that the create the if this had a creator, then the creator would have to kind of be as complex, if not more complex. So what made the creator? And then that's when you will get this special exception thing. Yeah. Fly in. The, the, like the uh, first principle or the prime mover, right? Right. You know, the mm-hmm. Self-actualizing thing of awesomeness. I think a classic example would be, say, if a judge murdered somebody and then asked for the law not to apply to them because they didn't want to go to jail. Uh, you, and, you know, I, I see the special pleading come up a lot. I mean, this, the special pleading comes up all throughout um, our daily lives, especially amongst politicians. You know, politicians will say things like a politician should be required to X all the time. Like maybe it's uh, a politician should always tell the truth all the time and then they get called out on some thing they they lied about in the past you should like, always uh, be willing to debate at any time and uh uh then you're asked to a debate and you decline and you, but you have a good yeah, reason yeah well, not this time you know the important element that sets special pleading apart is that the person doing that pleading often says that something is always true or that people should always adhere to a certain rule But when that same person breaks those rules or realizes that the conditions that they think are universal endanger their own beliefs, suddenly those rules don't apply in this special case. Let's say a person is a vegan and they say it's never, ever, ever okay to eat meat, but it's okay for their parents to eat meat because, well, you know, they grew up in another time and they love them. Maybe someone says it's not okay to vote for a less than stellar choice for president just to prevent the other party from winning, even though they expect people in their own party to do exactly the same thing when that time comes around. Or maybe the head of the DEA thinks that all drugs are evil and should be illegal, 
but they have no problem drinking a glass of scotch after a long day. And if you argue with that person and say that alcohol is a drug and it affects the brain and it causes automobile accidents and fetal alcohol syndrome and all sorts of other stuff, if that person says to you, yeah, but you know, come on, it's alcohol. It's an exception. You know, that is special pleading. And there are a lot of ways to get out of an emotional jam like this. Applying double standards, being hypocritical, making exceptions. But one of the more complicated rhetorical maneuvers is something called moving the goalposts. You start out arguing one point and then someone rebuts that point. They give you some some really good counter evidence or, or you know, uh, counter argument. But you don't concede. Instead, you just switch tacks and say, well, the real issue here is... And you switch to a different point. Often when people have been making predictions or, or, or speculating about you know, politics or social issues, and then some new development happens. And so then the, the pundits have to, have to come up with some response that, that is some response other than, oh, yeah, I guess I was wrong about that. So, you know, pundits who claim, well, yeah, Trump, no one will ever take Trump seriously. He's not going to win a primary or anything. Well, then he wins, wins a primary and they have to say, well, yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyone can win a primary, right? He'll never retain his lead, blah, blah, blah. And so they just change the criterion for what it counts to be, you know, taken seriously or to have a serious shot, you know, each time their previous criterion was, was falsified. Mm. And, you know, that's interesting that this is one of those fallacies that a, that can occur culture wide, you know, it can, it scales up to be, mm. uh, many people together can commit it uniformly and homogeneously instead of just being an individual, but it also happens at the individual level. Cause I know, I know that this is personally, I do this all the time and other people do all the time. Cause when you are, if you're doing that, if you've been called out on being wrong about something, you can sort of try to wiggle out of it with this post-rationalization thing mm-hmm. of, saying, of sometimes it's called moving the goalposts where you, uh, you know, you, you, especially if you make a blanket statement that, um, you know, I see this a lot in the, when people don't believe in evolution, they'll oftentimes they'll ask for a very specific piece of evidence, like show me the fossil mm-hmm. that looks like this. And then mm-hmm. eventually, of course, scientists will find a fossil like that. And they're like, well, you know, well, what about a fossil like this? And they just keep moving the, they keep shrinking the iris down of what they're looking for, uh, yeah. asking for a special exception to what they were originally asking for. I, well, I personally try to avoid getting into debates with, evolution deniers um because it's just it's just the ratio of um payoff to frustration or to yeah effort is not uh good enough (laughs) right uh but i have seen that happen um i mean with people i've seen it happen with people demanding evidence for all kinds of um of claims um not just scientific ones like like if you look at the way that people uh kept demand kept insisting that that Obama wasn't an American citizen um and you know they demanded his he said he didn't have a birth certificate so he produced that but then it they wanted what else did they want like a long form birth certificate i don't know but they keep kept requiring more and more um specific and and elaborate standards of evidence um even as their previous demands were met yeah my favorite is the one that Carl Sagan had in his book, The Demon Haunted World, in the chapter, The Dragon in My Garage, um, where he talks about a dragon in his garage. And he, he it's really kind of clever. He puts the, the 
reader in the position of being the skeptic, and he wants to convince the reader that they should be skeptical. So he puts the, the, them in a, a position where they will be uh, skeptical. So he says, I have a dragon in my garage. So the reader, you know, wants to go see evidence of this, you know, because that would be really interesting if it turned out to be true. Uh, and they go to his garage and you open the door and you see nothing. And Sagan says, oh, did I, I forget to mention that it, it's an invisible dragon. Ah, uh, yeah. Okay. The reader says, well, let's throw some talcum powder on the floor and we'll be able to see its footprints. Well, that won't work, Sagan says, because it's a floating invisible dragon. Okay. Then we'll use a thermometer to, you know, take the temperature of the heat uh, of its fiery breath. Well, actually, it breathes heatless fire. Um, but I can touch it, right? Nope, it's incorporeal. An incorporeal floating invisible dragon that breathes heatless fire. And all of the proposed tests are reasonable uh, suggestions uh, for determining whether or not there's a fire-breathing animal in your garage. But Sagan offers no reason to excuse us from demanding at least the minimum amount of evidence that we need for his claim, right? So that's, you know, that's my favorite example. It's it's such it's just an obvious post rationalization thing that's that a person's doing for something that they have obviously been called out on. I mean, this is mm-hmm. it's it's and it's it's a it is I think something that we all um, have a sort of I, don't, I mean it feels like that we have an instinctual response yeah. to 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 when we when we're when our beliefs are challenged. Like this is our knee-jerk reaction almost every single time is to try to um, move things around just a little bit so that we can continue believing what we believed before. Right. Well, I there was an example of this when I, I lived back in in Atlanta. Um, I worked with a, a it was a splinter group of the independent investigations group, and they had a, a, a they have a fifth uh, I think it's a hundred thousand dollar prize for anyone who can uh, show evidence of a paranormal ability. Uh, under strictly controlled conditions. And we were briefly in contact with a TV psychic who agreed that she would be able to, if I remember correctly, with a a, a, a 90 to 95% certainty, she'd be able to identify uh, which folder out of a a random group of of 10 uh, or out of a group of 10 folders, which one had the picture of a deceased celebrity in it. So this, this, she, you know, so she would be able to tell just by like, I don't know, running her hands over it or whatever, that this is the one as opposed to all the other ones, which had, uh, celebrities who are still alive. Right. Before she came to Atlanta, we made sure that we told her, you want to test this yourself first, before you, you come down here, make sure you have a friend, uh, that they're the ones who prepare it, uh, that when you're given the test, neither of you knows where the right one is, you know, you want to blind it. And a couple weeks later, we got a phone call and she explained that it wasn't us so much as it was the test itself that interfered with her psychic ability, right? It's like, oh, you got a dragon in your garage. What is, I mean, if you, how do you know that, you know, when you're looking at a, a fallacy, how do you, how do you, what's a good way to spot um, special pleading whenever it's being committed? I would say a good habit in arguments in general is just to keep asking yourself what the original, uh, what was, what's the reason we're talking about this in the first place? Um, 
you know, so, so I mean, this is help for, helpful for avoiding long tangents that don't actually address the crux of the issue, but it's also helpful for, you know, uh, s- someone d- demanding some additional piece of evidence that hadn't actually been part of their original demand. So if you can keep explicit in your minds or ideally explicit in the, in the conversation with the other person, like this was the original thing that we were going to settle um, it becomes clearer when they keep moving the goalposts. I mean, and even better would be to have them make their prediction up front, like get them to say up front before you even get into the debate at all. Like, uh, this is the thing that I require. And if I were to get it, then I would change my mind. Get some kind of like explicit pre-commitment like that, um, which people will often avoid because on some level they know that they want to leave themselves wiggle room for special pleading. Um, but uh, but you have a better shot at avoiding it when you're... Um, when you, you know, get it in writing up front. I think it's hard to defend yourself against these things because the people who you are arguing with won't always be rational mm-hmm. like you were being. Um, but I think breaking things down helps. Like if, if they're looking to be exempt from something, like kind of coming back and, and stating what the rule is and asking them, like, why... I think to justify why they should be exempt from something would probably make people think a bit differently. So I think if you're really trying to like drill down to the core of the problem, that could help. You know, if you find yourself making a lot of excuses and assuming things that you you don't actually know to be true in order to allow those excuses to hold up, you know, you might be doing some special pleading. If you start getting defensive, that's a good sign. You cross your arms or something. That that that's a good sign. I think this fallacy is easy to spot because people are just inclined to be fair. We have an inherent sense of fairness and cooperation even to people we don't know, and even animals in the wild do this. They display fairness towards each other. So for example, um female vampire bats when they go out at night and if they have a feed and there's someone else in their group who doesn't get any food, they actually regurgitate half of their food into the mouth of the other bat so everybody has had an equal amount of food i mean that like evolutionary speaking is not in their best interest like in that single bat's best interest to do that right uh-huh. uh, except we just have this inclination to be fair so i think finding examples of special pleading is almost instinctual like you, <laughs> you will spot when something is unfair <laughs> that is that's the best example ever. Vampire bats regurgitating into each other's mouths. Yeah. <laughs> so I would be clear with yourself up front about what the crux of your belief really is um, and avoid the temptation, although it is a strong temptation, to argue against rebuttals that aren't really core to your belief. Because if you lose that battle, then you're going to be forced to shift to another battleground um, rather than losing the war. So let's say uh, someone named Bob is arguing that porn pornography should be banned because it reduces people's enjoyment of real sex. Okay. So I might be tempted to argue against that, um, that point that Bob is making, but let's say Bob can produce well-conducted studies showing there is like a well-documented causal effect of porn on the enjoyment of sex. Well, then I'm going to be stuck saying, okay, fine, but still it shouldn't be illegal because it's not the state's business if, you know, how much I enjoy sex, et cetera. I'm going to have to move the goalposts because that was never the crux for me in the first place. Um, And what I should have said to Bob is, you know, okay, I doubt that porn reduces people's enjoyment of sex, but even if it did, I wouldn't support banning it unless a person watching porn 
caused somehow caused a direct and serious harm to other people. That's really the crux of my position there, that it's not the state's business to police my moral choices unless those choices are endangering other people. But if I don't have the, if I'm not clear with myself about what is the crux, then I'm going to start arguing against things that, you know, if they were to change, I wouldn't actually update my opinion at all. I'd have to move the goalposts. So what do we, um, how do we counter against someone who is obviously engaging in special pleading? Oh, gosh. Um, honestly, at that point, you're arguing for the benefit of anyone who's listening. <laughs> you know? So, yeah, that that's, you know, the idea, sometimes the best thing you can do is just plant the seed of doubt, you know? Um, that, that sometimes is enough. Um, but, man, you really can. It, what chance do I have to... To reason something, reason someone out of something they're willing to die for in the instance that, you know, I don't know. Um, I think it could be really tough. I think the core problem with special pleading is that it's not logical. So if you're making an argument or if you're countering someone else's argument, you should just come back to logic. Mm-hmm. So how maybe that may, I was going to say maybe that's easier said than done because I don't know how how you would do that without sitting down and drawing a Venn diagram. Um, <laughs> Sometimes you need a Venn diagram. That's just a, uh, yeah. May, maybe you should sit down and draw a Venn diagram. <laughs> I would like that would be uh, the first political debate where somebody brings out a Venn diagram will be the <laughs> my favorite my favorite debate. Um, I actually saw a talk not too long ago where someone said that that. They, they came up with some number like more than over uh, more than 90 percent of political debates, if they just did the math, like they just asked if they just had like a panel off to the side that listened to whatever the person said. And then they said, OK, now we're going to hold for confirmation. And then like they had a panel like on Jeopardy or something that said they actually did the math of what the person said and then quickly Googled if, if what they were saying was true. Like if they did that in political debates, it would completely like destroy the whole purpose of a political debate, which is just to make people look, you know, just make people look charismatic is the whole point yes. of a political debate. If you actually uh, did the math and pulled out the Venn diagrams, the whole system would collapse. So live fact checking isn't isn't something that we want if it would make the system collapse. I, would, I well, I like the idea of it, and it's been yeah, around, yeah. and it's, and this the the ability to do that has been with us for more than ten years now. But especially, yeah. but we don't do it because that's not even why. That's not even the point. Like, if you think the debates are about determining which person is right, well, that's mm-hmm. not how we. That's not how we do it in the United States. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care who's right. We just want to who who's cool. Um, <laughs> So I don't tend to focus on on adversarial contexts like like public debates because in those contexts the point is not like those are not debates in good faith. The no one on that stage is going to actually say, you know what? I guess you're right. Your foreign policy is better than mine. <laughs> you, um, you got me. <laughs> right. It's just a performance, and and you know whether you win or lose is not that related to the quality of your arguments or the evidence. Um, and I know there are plenty of people who, who work on, you know, how to win debates. Um, and I think that can be a valuable thing. That's just not really what I do. So I'm more focused on contexts where, uh, people are at least on some level, you know, approaching the argument in good faith, maybe not with all parts of their psychology. Maybe there's some parts of them that are resistant or defensive or whatever. That's normal, but at least in theory, they would like to be able to, um, to have a productive conversation. And so in those contexts, uh, I, I wouldn't worry too much about pointing out 
aha, you moved the goalposts on me. Um, if you're trying to have a productive dialogue with someone, I would just stay focused on helping them articulate what the crux of their belief really is. And, mm. you know, they might get confused and focus at first on something that's not a crux. So, you know, they, they end up moving the goalposts, but whatever, you don't win a prize for pointing that out. Just, you know, keep trying to find, find what their model is made of, what the crux of, of their belief really is. And why do you think it is that we sort of jump to that emotional position? Why, why do we want to um, rationalize our beliefs? Why do, why do we defend our beliefs so quickly instead of saying, hmm, I might be wrong about this? What do you think is going on there? It, in a lot of ways, things just come back to confirmation bias, where we will bend facts and rules and everything just to support what we already believe in, because mm -hmm. it, it makes us feel good about ourselves. Well, a lot of times when, when people are like willing to die on this mountain, you know, like when they really are going to defend this to the, the to the bitter end, um, uh, it often has to do with identity, you know, like um, like like the a girl who the, she thinks that she's a psychic, that that's her claim to fame. That's what makes her special or, or different or uh, someone who who believes that there are, um, you know, the apple of god's eye uh that is something that that imbues us with a, a sense of importance and meaning and it's really uncomfortable uh to 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 walk away from that sometimes so you dig in and also if you believe something fervently enough the world will just seem to bend to your your prejudice you know it'll it'll bend to your perception of things it's, it's far easier to just let the universe conform to your beliefs than it is to adjust your beliefs to the universe. Bob Blaskowitz is an assistant professor of critical thinking at Stockton University and very active in the skeptic community. You can find him in places like virtualskeptics.com, skepticalhumanities.com, and the Skepticality Podcast. Vanessa Hill is a science educator and writer and stop-motion animator who hosts BrainCraft, which you can find on YouTube as part of PBS Digital Studios, where she teaches psychology and neuroscience through crafty, interesting videos her website is nessiehill.com. Julia Galef is the president and co-founder of the Center for Applied Rationality, and she hosts the Rationally Speaking podcast in addition to making YouTube videos, lecturing, and writing for a number of publications you have most likely heard of. You can find her at juliagalef.com. I'll have links to all of their stuff at youarenotsosmart.com. And in the show notes for this episode, both at youarenotsosmart.com and iTunes and SoundCloud. Up next, a short commercial, and then a cookie, and then the credits. I've made a lot of websites over the years, sometimes from scratch, sometimes using a supposedly simple program or online tool, but nothing has ever compared 
to Squarespace. Squarespace is always what I recommend to people wanting to make a website for their portfolio or anything else from a restaurant to a band or a product. If I wanted to make a website just for these logical fallacy episodes, and I'm thinking I might do that, I would use Squarespace because when you make something with them, you know it will look professionally designed regardless of how much you know about coding or Photoshop or design or APIs or anything else. If you do know about that stuff, though, you can make something killer quickly and easily. And with Squarespace, you get a free domain name if you sign up for a year. So start your free trial today at squarespace.com. And when you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off of your first purchase. And it shows your support for You Are Not So Smart. We thank Squarespace for their support of this podcast. They sponsored us for a very long time. So we want you to head to squarespace.com and use the offer code SOSMART to get 10% off. And now we return to our program. On each episode of the You Are Not C So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And if we pick the recipe that you send to David at youarenotsosmart.com, and then I eat that cookie on the air after Amanda has baked them, I will send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book, or maybe You Are Now Less Dumb, one or the other. The two books, You Are Not So Smart and You Are Now Less Dumb, signed and sent to you as a token of appreciation for the delicious cookie you send to us. In this episode, I have the email right here. The cookie comes from Yoa Pedro Lopez, who writes, Hi, David, I have been wanting to send you these Portuguese traditional recipe cookies for these delicious pine nut cookies. Their form will be a little different from the traditional American cookies, but the flavor is really divine. Enjoy it. Best JP, originally from Lisbon, Portugal, now living in Cleveland, Ohio. And these cookies, they are European style butter, sugar, a lemon, all zested, egg yolks, flour, pine nuts, I said pine nut, and butter and flour on your baking sheet. So it's pretty simple. Uh, the idea behind these, though, there's a lot of prep. You have to zest that lemon, do the egg yolks, put it all together, mold it into the size of a quail egg, it says in the instructions here, and put the spheres on a baking sheet, cook for 25 minutes, and then enjoy. They do come out as spheres. So I'm holding a sphere, a little flat on the bottom, and uh, mm, they smell very lemony. So here we go. JP, I'm going to try these Portuguese pine nut cookies. Here we go. Oh, so good. So these, these have pine nuts all through them and they sort that those are crunchy and nutty, but in between is a lemony, fluffy textured cookie matrix. And they're very, they're very light. They're very airy. Mm, so good. This is uh, this is something you, you could definitely pop like 
seven or seven or 15 of these before you felt like you've had enough. Oh my God. Mm. These require milk or tea or coffee or something like that, or even hot cocoa. They definitely sort of meet you halfway and you can tell that there needs to be something else that sort of fills in the rest because it isn't an overpowering taste. It's, uh, it's just sort of getting there and it's extending its hand. It's asking for you to extend your hand in friendship and then bite that hand and it tastes its lemony, nutty Portuguese deliciousness with some fine Portuguese tea. Oh, mm, so good. These are, these don't feel, you know, indulgent. They feel just like this is a, a fine, dainty, lemony team player. This cookie is not out to be famous. It's not out to stand out from the crowd. This cookie wants to work together on a project and make the best flavor combination it can make. But it wants you to contribute just as much. It is not going to take credit. Even if it put in more effort than the uh, the coffee, it would not say so. It would, it would sit there and let the work stand for itself. Oh, thank you so much. This is a delicious cookie, JP. And a book is on its way. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. This music that you're hearing right now is Banjo Apocalypse. All the other music is paid for by patrons. Your patronage paid for the music in this show and so much more. You can support this show at patreon.com slash you are not so smart. A super special thank you goes out to listener Matthew Cravat, who sent me an email showing me that this episode was completely scrambled up and uh, had this big mistake in it. And I was able to fix that mistake and rearrange it. Thank you so much, Matthew. Oh my God. Oh my God. You're so great. Thank you. Thanks again to the MIT Press for sponsoring today's episode. Don't forget to go to mitpress.com slash smart to check out their newest books in science, philosophy, technology, language, and art, among other areas. And definitely keep an eye out for Susanna's book, The Human Advantage, A New Understanding of How Our Brain Became Remarkable. Next episode, we will have a special episode about the book I'm working on, then back to the fallacies. I said Portuguese pine nut. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, and I'm very proud to have BetterHelp as a sponsor. I was using BetterHelp before they became a sponsor, and I was very excited to learn that they wanted to sponsor this program. I have recommended BetterHelp to people. I know people right now who I've recently onboarded. I had a friend who had a really difficult medical event and was experiencing a completely new range of anxieties and feelings and concerns and I recommended therapy. I'd never gone to therapy before and this helped. Now a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time and the question is time for what? If our time was unlimited how would you use it? And the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what is that special thing? What is important to you? 
what is that thing that deserves to take that slot, that precious time? How do you make that a priority? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. And if you're thinking of starting therapy, I really recommend giving BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire and you will get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. You can do that several times and really lock in with a therapist that is able to generate with you that dynamic that's so important. I believe you should be in therapy. I believe everyone should be in therapy for a period of time at least in their lives to sort this out. What's important to you? How do you make it work? And you can learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash Y-A-N-S-S.